Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we never dread sundown. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to this podcast, welcome! We are in the last very millennial stretch of this of this fourth series of this podcast where we're looking at teen horror movies in depth and exploring why teenagers and especially teenage girls make up such compelling protagonists of the genre. This week, we're going back in time and looking at two takes on an underrated slasher, The Town That Dreaded Sundown from 1976 and probably one of the very first requels that is sort of a sequel, sort of a remake, which has now become a kind of mainstream approach to rebooting established horror franchises, see Scream 2022. And this one from 2014 comes from the mind of Ryan Murphy, he of American Horror Story fame, and Jason Blum of Blumhouse fame. It's a requel with the same name as the original, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And it's so much more interesting and accomplished than it has any right being. So if you haven't seen any of these films, I actually encourage you to listen to this episode because it might be quite interesting. It's not... They're not films that really have much of a spoiler thing to them, but they're so underseen, both of them, that if this episode encourages anyone to discover the towns that dreaded sundown, then my job is done. Joining me to go over both of these strange slashers is the absolute horror legend, author of A Thousand Women in Horror and many other seminal books on the genre, is Alexander Heller Nicholas. Before we dive into the episode, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UK. and if you can spare a few seconds of your day, please do leave this podcast a review on Apple or Spotify. It really helps people discover the show, and I appreciate every single one of you who's left a review. They really make my day. With all of that said, please enjoy our take on both versions of The Town That Dreaded Sundown. The American lady tells us we're recording. I'm recording locally as well. Uh, <laughs> Alex, thank you again so very much for giving up a little bit of your time to talk to me. It is always a pleasure and an honor to speak to you about films of any kind, but especially horror films. It is more than mutual. I'm so excited to revisit th- these. I hope I don't fuck up the title. That's my biggest fear. Like That's the most <laughs> challenging thing. I think in email, I use like 10 different titles and <laughs> I've started calling it the town that dreaded beyond sunrise as a joke. And I know that I'm, that's what I'm going to call it now. Like I'm going to, so, so yeah, count how many times I fuck up the title. <laughs> you know what? I'm not even going to let you know because I'm excited to see what variations we get throughout the next 45, 50 minutes. We'll just stick um, to the sound that dreaded before sunrise. Yep. You know what? Like it could be, it could be the most niche of horror spoofs. I like that. It's a mashup that we have to have. <laughs> so, I mean, I think with these films, it it kind of makes sense to talk about them at the same time instead of going one by one because they feel like so much uh, in conversation with one another as opposed to the, as a direct remake or a direct sequel. Um, but I wanted to start first of all with the 1976 one, and would you would you mind kind of 
introducing your own relationship with the film and kind of where does it stand in 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 horror for you personally? So I knew The Legend of Boggy Creek really well, the 1973 mockumentary, docufiction, whatever you want to call it, by the same director as Town That Dreaded Sun- Sundown. <laughs> I always did it. Um, a guy called Charles B. Pierce, who, of course, is really important to the story of the mm-hmm. 2014 version. Um, so I really saw this the first time, I think, just as a sort of uh, – it was when I was doing my found footage horror book – so I was really into the the legend of Boggy Creek, which I actually don't think I ended up really talking about in the found footage horror book, but it's kind of related, you know, it's got that mockumentary mm-hmm. vibe. And I sort of watched this as sort of additional research, you know, and I was sort of mildly curious, but um, it was really how it sort of, you know, through the lens of, of, of Boggy, Boggy Creek, which I think is, you know, the film that he's just as well known for. Um, and, you know, if you're a Bigfoot fan, it's pretty essential. Yeah. Um, up there with Shriek of the Mutilated, you know, it's good It's good times for everybody. Um, but when the second one came out, then I went back and, and really revisited The Town That Dreaded Sundown on its own merits. Um, and I did exactly what you just said in that I pretty much watched them back to back. Um, and the thing that really got me to the second one, which we'll talk about when we get to that, but was the DOP, um, a guy called Michael Goy. But perhaps we can talk about mm-hmm. that later and just stick with the first one, one at a time. In that sense, I mean, I think this is probably, considering when this film came out and the the financial success that it had as well um, at that time and the financial success that Boggy Creek had for Charles P. Pierce too, um, it does seem to be a bit lesser known that other, that other what I've been calling throughout this season, kind of the granddaddies of slasher films that have been so mm-hmm. deeply influential. Where does the the town that dreaded sundown stand alongside all those other hyper influential horror films of the seventies? That is such a great question. I think that because um, I think a lot about um, Black Christmas and how mm-hmm. Black Christmas really for a long time. I mean, I think it certainly had you know in the last decade or two, it's had a kind of um, renaissance. Um, but for years, you know, in the 90s and uh, 80s, it was forgotten, you know, like it was sort of, you know, the, there was that assumption that that 70s horror was very much those sort of indie darlings. You know, you had Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, you know, you, you had Halloween, you, you know, all of those mm-hmm. big, big, big names. And those indie filmmakers were like the core, you know, in, um, you know, David Cronenberg and, and sort of starting with Night of the Living Dead, you know, the, the American, um, what's that great um, – that great documentary, the Adam Simon documentary, The American Nightmare. Mm-hmm. So those kind of core films were really it for, you know, North American horror. And Black Christmas doesn't really fit into that, yet it sort of historically, you know, it, you know, it's a slasher film that really predates, yeah. obviously predates Halloween. It's such an important film historically, but because it was for a mainstream studio, it sort of fell off the, the radar a little bit, which is a tragedy because it's an amazing film. Mm-hmm. I know we're not talking about that this film here, but – for me, it's almost like a spectrum where those those really big cult in, indie films are in the middle. We have Black Christmas at one end, but at mm-hmm. the other end, we have The Town That Dreaded Sundown. You know, it sort of also fell off the radar a little bit in, mm-hmm. because Charles B. Pierce isn't one of those big indie darling horror guys. Um, and I think it's really fascinating to think of in in context to sort of being at one extreme and having – Black Christmas at the other extreme, but having all of those other more really, really cult famous films sort of in the middle. And yeah, I, I don't know if the, if there wasn't the remake or the the the, the reimagining, the revisiting, the the, the requel. <laughs> in the in the parlance the of Scream Five, the requel. Very good. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, if this, certainly this wouldn't have been remembered as much as um, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's a really fascinating film just historically in, in terms of horror history. I, I think so too. And I think it does get it does get forgotten or kind of not talked about in, in the same way. And I wonder, there's a couple of ideas, I think, as to why that might be. But I did, I actually, despite the fact that I had seen the requel first before seeing the mm-hmm. original 76 film, I had completely blocked out of my mind that it was a Ryan Murphy production or a Ryan Murphy initiated production. And I was reading a couple of interviews between him and Jason Blum and he, they had sort of, Taken, they were attracted by the fact that people didn't really remember this odd little film from the 70s. And obviously that meant it was cheaper. Um, there was not as much IP recognition, but we'll, we'll get to that. But what I did find really strange when I was watching it is that it doesn't, it feels so incredibly contemporary and not of its time. And I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about what makes it stand out from other films that perhaps got more recognition from that era. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting film, I think, on that front. I mean, one of the most immediate things about it is that it's a film set, uh, obviously based on a true story. So it's based on the, um, oh, what was it called? The, the the Texarkana Moonlight Murders was another name. So 1946, I think it's like eight months. It's not even a mm-hmm. year after the war ended, World War II ended, that the actual murders took place and that the film is set. But then you have the original town that dreaded sundown in this really interesting position to Vietnam. So we have these two sort of films that are very closely connected to a wartime, a very intense wartime headspace in Mm -hmm. in America more broadly. Um, And I I think that that's really interesting in relation to some of these other films that we're talking about that, you know, it's very kind of common, you know, things like Last House on the Left and, you know, Mm -hmm. we talk about in relation to Vietnam for very, very good reasons. You know, it's a really powerful film about that particular zeitgeist um but this film is explicitly about war like it's really Mm -hmm. explicitly talking about you know we are now in a post-war period the soldiers have come back our boys are back you know like it's really really curious in that sense i think and and where it overlaps i mean i love the narration and i love that the um the requel continues the narration and every Mm -hmm. time i see especially the original it always reminds me of john larroquette from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. you know, that that sort of that great, that great introduction. Yeah. And it's a really important, and, and again, you know, carrying on from um, Charles B. Pierce's relationship to to mockumentary or, or, or docudrama, again, you know, the, we can be loose with our terms here, faux mm-hmm. documentary. Um, we do have that, I think, with the town that dreaded sundown, you know, we have this real life event, we have this voiceover and um, ostensibly, you know, a lot of the things that they talk about in there, um, happen, you know, that the phantom killer never got caught. That's true. Um, so yeah, it has this really interesting relationship to, to the world. Uh, and I don't say that in the sense that this is an authentic <laughs> movie, um, you know, but it's, it's relation to, it's relationship to the world more generally in relation to this sort of post-war imagination that straddles both 1976 and the time that it was set, 1948, 1946. Uh, 46. Um, yep. Um, it's really fascinating to me. And it does it in a very, very different way than those really big cult indie darling horror films were at the time. 
So I want to I want to ask you about that but first I wanted to to get into a little bit this um this true story element because I did when I was watching it and obviously this is informed by the uh, humongous rise in true crime content over the last decade I'd say both in podcast form in documentary you know loose let's call it loosely documentary-based content, fiction as well, there is now a language of true crime that we're very familiar with. And watching this slash, a fictional slasher film from the 70s, I was so surprised, so taken aback by how similar the tone was in so many ways. And this kind of true story element, I wanted to dig in a little, a little bit into it because it did, it went big and bold with the true story element, didn't it? It wasn't, you know, inspired by true events. It said, this is a true story. All of this actually happened. Um, so where do you, I find, I'm not, I'm not really sure how to formulate the question. I find it really interesting. Kind of, What do you think about how it went full on into this confusing, murky territory of saying, no, this fictional slasher is actually true? I find this stuff so interesting. I, I've always been like a true crime junkie, like really like a teenage Same. boy for true crime. Like I just... I just live for the stuff. And, um, you know, I remember like, you know, getting books from the library when I was a kid, like on the Manson family. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm going to eat every page. Like really. And I don't, you know, I've spent a great deal of time trying to kind of, especially with this sort of mainstreaming or the Netflixing of true mm-hmm. crime, where it's something that you just binge a series, you know, hung over on the couch on a Sunday. Um, you know, there are obviously really big ethical questions about that, you know, and it's something that I think, especially with this sort of renaissance of true crime that I've mm-hmm. had to sort of, you know, why did these bug me? Um, I don't tend to get sucked into the Netflix stuff as much as I do other kinds of true crime. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, they, they I sort of get a bit morally uncomfortable and it's like, well, why? That's really hypocritical. So it's made me really address my own um my own biases and, mm-hmm. you know, what, what I find to be, you know, acceptable to be a, a, a consumer product, basically. So, mm-hmm. you know, this fits in in a real – I'm going really broad here, sorry. It sounds like I'm no, going no, totally it's fascinating. Off, Keep off going. subject. I'm having a minor stroke. Oh, my God. No, um, I, but I, I, I think I, – I love my guests to have existential crisis on the podcast. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of my thing now. <laughs> you got the right girl. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Um, so, you know, something like um, The Golden Glove a couple of years mm-hmm. ago was such a, an enormous revelation to me because of the, the it's a tragedy. The, the pain and the tragedy of that film um, was so real to me and, and it really clarified a lot of uh, the, the key elements of my own relationship to true crime and also the style. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I and I, I have to say that I really grew up, you know, with TV true crime, which were old reruns of really old movies. And a lot of them come from this time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you look at the 70s, you know, obviously, you know, if we consider Texas Chainsaw Massacre true crime or not, you know, it's like Psycho, right? Like there's this loose yeah. sort of connection to Ed Gain. I don't there's, know. There's don't a know loose inspiration. Yeah. Exactly. Like I don't know whether what we want to tie them in, but certainly, you know, the, the Zodiac Killer film, um, a really, really big one for me has always been, uh, which I think has actually got a really interesting relationship to this film in its tone, mm-hmm. is the um, Leonard Castle Honeymoon Killers from 1970 with Shirley Stoller and Tony LaBianco, which of course is based on the Lonely Hearts Killers from the 1940s. So you have this 70s film made, you know, inspired by this 40s true crime story. And there's this really kind of gritty documentary vibe to it I just I love I love 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 the honeymoon killers but even 1976 like the year that this came out we had the big 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 
Helter Skelter film, the, the Manson mm-hmm. family one. There was the the Jess Franco, um, Jack the Ripper, which I didn't realize how mainstream that was. But my mum in like rural Australia saw that. Really? She's like, yeah, she loved it, and she's like never heard. You know, she's not cult. <laughs> she's like, I would you know, never MGM associate musicals. Jess Franco with mainstream. That's baffling. somehow. I mean, maybe it was just an Australian thing, but somehow that got mainstream play here because my mum was nuts for it, and she was a big Jack the Ripper fan. So I think she just went to it because it was Jack the Ripper. She knew nothing mm-hmm. about any of that so yeah I think Australia has some weird distribution things in its history um but even moving away from true crime you know 76 Mm -hmm. we have um taxi driver we have uh the killer inside me lots of really interesting stuff is going on and I think that both taxi driver and killer inside me do have you know they're fictional films but they have this sort of authenticity really that just rips your guts open you know Mm -hmm. like they're so raw and um so there's something perhaps about the aesthetics of true crime from this particular moment um, that speaks to me personally. But as you say, you know, how does that inform contemporary stuff? And and I think collectively um, that's almost like ground zero for Mm. true crime, Um, not just storytelling, but, but tone and, and mood and, and, you know, what we expect, you know, I think the expectations for true crime were really set with films like that and things like, you know, the Boston Strangler and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole bunch of films that I'm, I'm, you know, earlier films that I'm not talking about, but certainly in regards to the seventies and 76 in particular, it does fit in, in the sense that it's a piece of the puzzle, I think of of the history of of true crime. Mm. And it's also a moment where at least in the United States, it was, um, not to make it too flippant, but it was a, a, a peak era for actually active serial killers. It was a, a real life danger that a lot of towns and cities in America had to consider, um, even it, even at least the ones that were caught or identified, um, let alone the ones that were active and never actually apprehended. But there is something about the structure that I really wanted to talk about the structure of the film because it is so odd. It's the narration, it's the nostalgic element to it, it's the fact that it's about the town and the investigation, and the killings are very slim, but when they appear, they're quite brutal, but then the killer is so so deeply and hilariously human in the way that he's almost sloppy in some scenes, and the costume is so low rent, it's just a bag over his head with some cut out eye holes um what do you make of the or kind of how has your has your take on the structure and the tone of this film um changed since you've since you've rewatched it it's interesting because i i think the reason i mean there are people that really love this film and there are people that absolutely hate it are totally not switched onto it at all and interestingly i think the reasons are the same in that it's so uneven it's so uneven. And I love that patchwork. I love all the crazy, like, slapstick stuff with spark yeah. plug. Like, it's just madness. It's like, what am I watching? It's like, you know, you hear about these absolutely brutal, you know, especially, like, the sexual assaults. Like, these brutal yeah. things are happening. And then it's like, you know, this really kind of goofy slapstick. It's just crazy. Like, it's – and I, I love that. I just – it's mm-hmm. just so mad. It's such a mad film. Um, and I believe you may know more than this than I do, but certainly I believe that the end of the film um, was kind of written on the spot. Like there was no, there was no think? end part of the script. And I think one of the actors actually wrote like the last fifth of the film. 
No, um, because, I had no idea about yeah, that. Yeah, like it's it's chaos. Like they were kind of um, Dawn Wells, of course, our Marianne from Gilligan's Island. Like she mm. didn't learn any lines. She she improvised all of it. She you know she read the script once and then just turned up and worked with the director. Um, so it was pretty. You know, I mean, it's a cheap film, right? Like it was a mm-hmm. low budget, um, a low budget horror film, and it was made in that that spirit. And I think I like that you can see the seams of that. Mm-hmm. That really appeals to me. And that's you know, you can have this crazy slapstick moment. You can have this insane moment <laughs> with a trombone. You know? Oh my god, why am I laughing? Like it's just. But the the I mean, I've you know, as you know, like I've written a book on masks, and I could write a whole book on on the masks in these two films. I mean, it's so incredible to me it's so low rent as you say like it's just like a plastic bag and the eyes cut out like no it's like somebody's really dialing it in 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 the Mm. costume department here if there is a costume department but it's so effective the way that the breathing works and it sucks in the mouth and it pops out it's so visceral like I find it I've seen a lot of you know any horror fan right you've seen a Mm. lot of films with masks and honest to god to me the one in the original town that dreaded before sunrise <laughs> um, it's it's just terrifying like no matter how stupid the scene is it genuinely freaks me out like I, mm. I just there's something about the breath coming in and coming out and I don't think that carries over to the to the new version they okay. use like a hessian sack and yeah. they still go for that that inhalation exhalation but there's something about the texture of the first one that absolutely chills me to the fucking core like it's really visceral and th- I think that you're so on point. It's the the breathing in, um, mm-hmm. in both versions actually. But in the first one, I remember being like, I mean, I, I rewatched it yesterday, but I remember being taken aback. It's like this is, this feels very assaulting and very visceral in a way that I don't think. Um, uh, yes, Freddy Krueger, but he's not really wearing a mask. That's just his face. But Michael Myers or Jason or any or Leatherface, they never felt so. They never felt like they were enjoying the moment as much as the Phantom did, and I found that ex- extra creepy. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I don't want to kind of go into the history of masks in horror, but. Um, I think that especially, um, you know, Jason and Michael Myers are really, really useful points of comparison in regards to what those masks do. So the 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 Michael Myers mask is is what I call it. It's a category which is blank masks. And mm-hmm. obviously the house that dreaded sundown um, falls into that as well. Mm-hmm. But if, if, you know, just to quickly kind of summarize, like if we think of the mask as a transformative device, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of analog technology that transforms the wearer into something else. Mm-hmm. We can see how that works with Michael, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with, with, with Jason, it's, it's what I call a repurposed mask. So it's a mask that's meant, and I'm talking, you know, the later masks, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the hockey mask here. I don't want the, the purists to get irate. If I'm not talking about the first film, we know, we know the <laughs> hockey mask isn't there. Um, you gotta gotta keep these people happy um yeah we do we do like (laughs) you know it's a hockey mask it's meant to play hockey it's a safety device and there's something kind of really unsettling about how that is is repurposed to be used in horror Hmm. what we have with the mask in the house at dreaded sundown is a much more fragile mask it i don't know whether it transforms in the same way that these other masks do and i think that's because of its it's materiality, like it's so thin and it's that breathing in and out that reminds us how thin it is. It's thin enough to breathe through. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a membrane, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like more yeah. than, you know, I mean, Leatherface is great because it's literally like 
the face of leather, right? It's a skin mask, but it's a thick, you know, it was was made of fiberglass. Like it Mm -hmm. was thick and we didn't get that really thin tissue paper like quality that we get here. And there's something about the actual delicacy of the mask in this film that makes it so volatile. I think just on a subconscious level, I, I don't, I don't think that we're consciously thinking about all of this stuff unless you're me and you're a massive nerd for the history of masks. <laughs> um, but there's something about that mask, the fact that you can breathe through it, the fact that it's so rippable, like you could just reach your hands up and just rip through it. And, and again, I think that's more than, than we see in, 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 uh, the 2014 version where, you know, we see it pulled off in a kind of Scooby-Doo moment. Yeah. Um, but we just don't have any equivalent moments in, in this original one. And and to me, that's actually much more disturbing. I, I want to use kind of the, the phantom, the killer itself mm. as a, as a way to start talking about the, the requel from 2014, um, because the, the ending of the film received, a, I think I was reading a couple of, uh, uh, reviews from the time and some of the more contemporary reviews of the film people hated the ending of the 76 version because it never revealed who the killer is it just said that he was still at large and i i personally love that i find that chilling i find that even if it was improvised it might have been just an accidental stroke of of good fortune or good storytelling whatever it might be but i think it works because it does it it's unsatisfi- it's satisfying in how unsatisfactory it is for me because you not to be extremely I don't think it intends to be realistic, but a lot of killers don't get caught. And the 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 legacy of them remains in the town. And I think that works so nicely, so much nicer than just finding out who it was or what their history was. It the the blank slate of the killer is so much powerful for me. And I wonder kind of what do you think about the ending and also how that became an entry point for a new ver- a new version of of the film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the town that dreaded sunrise like the original version in the context of things, not just the Zodiac killer, but you know, that that legacy of Jack the Ripper. So mm-hmm. that there's a sort of tried and true history, right? That there's this fascination, this ongoing fascination um with, you know, they're still out there. Um so I think it was com- and you know, they they never caught the, the the real killer in mm-hmm. Texicana, right? So it's it made sense to end it that way because that's how the story ended. Um, you know, if they're ostensibly presenting it as a true crime film or a true story, which as you say, they they very much do. Um, it's so interesting because a lot of the women in the film were actually based on 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 victims, on actual real they victims. Were. But a lot of the, the the male characters weren't. And I find that so interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, like really, really fascinating sort of decisions made in that original where they decided to stick with the true story and where they deviated from it. There was no real spark plug, I, I believe. I, I could be wrong here and apologies to the real life. I don't want to start a third film in this by a podcaster accidentally would, neglecting to, to no, acknowledge No, I want to the, see that film. I want to see that film. <laughs> the veracity um, of spark plug and his grandchildren coming back to seek vengeance. <laughs> I've seen worse films, to be honest. I've seen films with dumber premises. Look at us pitching. pitching I am. High. I am here. I'm waiting for the podcast horror wave. I thought we were going to get it after the 2018 Halloween, and I'm still waiting. It's been Listen years. up, Jason Blum. We're giving you this on a platter. Podcasters, international market, ready to go. I've totally. I've just goofed off. I've totally forgotten my my train of thought here. Um, you you were talking about um, kind of the well. You mentioned that the the female victims were based on real life victims, but the males one the male ones were um fictional. Um, That's right. But and also the original, 
the people hating the end of the original. Yeah, because mm. it's a really upsetting ending and it's a kind of film that you don't think you're going to be upset by because it's kind mm-hmm. of goofy and random and, you know, uneven, as we said. And, again, I don't say that as an attack. I like it for its unevenness. Um, but, I mean, I, I think it's a great ending. I think it's mm. a perfect ending and I love that, you know, that, that you know, the the killer, you know, with his shoes lining up to see the film is just fantastic. Oh, I, I adore yes. it. It's so good. You know, Gene Siskel kicked off about it in particular, you know, like, oh, no, it doesn't have an ending and, you know, there's no there's no hint who the killer might be. But it's like that's mm. the point. That the killer the point. could be anybody. You know, like it could, you know, it's it's this amorphous, you know, it, in that way it ties into films um, as different as things like, you know, the entity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's no one and everyone mm-hmm. in that there, there's an amorphous ambient threat. And to me that's absolutely, even in a kind of silly film, that's really scary. Mm. And and stories like, you know, again, Jack the Ripper and, and Zodiac Killer really made, you know, brought that idea, I think, into the popular imagination. Um, and if anything, I, I think that I was disappointed with the, the, the new version, mm-hmm. you know, with the ending of the new version. So, yeah. So let's let's do the new version in reverse. So let's start with the ending of the new version and kind of like what what about the ending of the new version uh, did you find disappointing? You know, I have to be honest up front. I, again, this sounds like I'm having a, a kind of geriatric moment here, so forgive me. But the boys I fancied when I were a teen were not the boys that turned up in, in horror movies, unless they were like, you know, freaks being, you know, kind of dealt with quite early in the film. I like the weird boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stand by my love of the weird boys when I was. I love was the young, weird boys. You know, I like what? the weird boys. But I like the weird what, boys, the boys now. <laughs> Go weird boys, worse. love you. <laughs> um, I have to stop I... myself from bringing up Ed Kemper on dates, Alex. <laughs> we're the weird, we're the weird boys. Like, <laughs> I love Corey. Like Corey, I just think, like for me, is one of the very, 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 very rare slasher boys that I genuinely love. And mm. it breaks my heart every fucking time. And I say that probably, and I hate to say this, as a mother. It used to, like... Like I just, I just love that boy. He's a nice mm. boy. He's a good boy. <laughs> See, I'm going into like my my Greek heritage is <laughs> starting to come through. He's a good boy, um, <laughs> and and it, he just damn broke my heart. <laughs> like it's like no, and we didn't need it. And we can't. I have Corey. Can't I have one boy just get murdered and that be it, and not have the <laughs> twist that he's an asshole? He's so sweet. You know, he's so nice, and I love. Totally not my kind of guy. So, again, I think I'm saying it probably as, like, a maternal thing rather than a kind of, oh, I fancy Spencer Treat Clark, who I think is in the new Salem's Lot. Um, Ooh, I, I, good for him. I hope I, good I don't – good for him. Good on you, Corey. I hope I don't have complicated feelings about him <laughs> in that film. So I do have that bias. I, I absolutely come to it with that bias. So I can't say whether I've built my critical response to the ending around this mm-hmm. very, very deep maternal – love that I have for the character of Corey, which is so stupid when I say it like that. But I mean, to me, the whole point of it is, is that it is amorphous, is that it is mm-hmm. an ambient threat. And to sort of, I mean, I, I think it's always interesting in any kind of film, um, rape revenge, especially, but any kind of movie at all, where um, the police are, are culpable. I, th- I think that always speaks to a, a tr- you know, a fear and a kind of cultural anxiety um, about power. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the official representation of the law that, you know, um, in many places right around the world, we have genuine reasons to f- have those anxieties. Um, so to me, that's always interesting. 
but yeah, I, I just, I love, I love the original ending. So to me, actually narrowing it down and then having the shadow pop up and following her, I think goes back to that, you know, the, the, the phantom is amorphous. The phantom is sort of ambient. He's in the air. He could mm-hmm. be anywhere, but it's like, well, if we're going to do that, then don't, we don't need the reveal. We don't need the Scooby-Doo reveal. Yeah. yeah and you mentioned Scooby-Doo before and, and I find that to be the, the, best possible summation of it because the revelation that it's not one but two killers but also that one of them is the the grandson of one of the the victims not even the killer and the other one that Corey's motivation really struck me as extremely dumb but kind of in a teenage way of I'm really angsty I'm a teenager I don't want to be a jock but I'm built like a jock so I'm gonna murder a bunch of people it's not necessarily a train of thought that I follow um with all my respects to Corey who seemed lovely until he, tur- <laughs> until he turned out to be a killer um, or a highly uh, suggestible killer but what I wanted to to talk about as well is the this the legacy of the film within the film, which is what I found really interesting because, and it is a real life tradition. Every I think Halloween or Christmas, they started doing it at Christmas. Uh, Texacana would screen the the town that dreaded sundown, uh, the seventy six film, and then they in the film that tradition is very in the two thousand fourteen film. This this is going to be like a tongue twister. Um, they also have that tradition. The murders start again, and the f- imagined son of the real life filmmaker Charles B. Pierce also plays a role in the 2014 remake and the f- the motivation of the killers <sighs> is that what <laughs> the one of the male victims was not included in the film that became such a sensation so that very roundabout explanation of what happens in the requel what do you make about what do you make of the role that the 76 film plays in the requel it's wild, huh? Like that is a wild. When you, when you actually sort of summarize the plot like that, it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, like, quite. Like, like, are you high? <laughs> like that is insane, and it's the audacity of it. I love it. I love the audacity of it. It's just so completely brazen, and it only makes sense in a world where the town where these things happen in real life plays the film. Like, there's a logic there that is. Um, crazy like it's it's just it's so wild I mean I I I didn't know that that was actually a thing that there was a real you know that 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 film is like a kind of cult um like a kind of social ritual and I I was trying to think of equivalents of it like we don't play you know we don't play Snowtown once a year in Australia um I mean I do personally because I'm sick and I love it it's a great <laughs> film but you know the, the good people and I want to speak actually very yeah. briefly now that I've touched this the yeah. Snowtown murders mostly happened in suburban Adelaide. They didn't happen in the nice little town of Snowtown. We call it Snowtown. I have to put that in every time I can. Uh-huh. It's completely irrelevant. But Fair you know, the, the people of Elizabeth and, and Snowtown don't sit down and watch Snowtown once a year because that would be kind of weird, right? It would be weird. The only equivalent I can think about is fictional. It's um, the Stabathon in the mm-hmm. screen franchise is the fact that they play the films that are based on the real life killings uh in in Woodsboro. <laughs> I don't know there's something about the audacity of this and the genuine affection for it. and I think you get that sense of genuine community affection in the film like you know there's a scene mm-hmm. where a guy turns up um in like a t-shirt of you know and you've got you know you you're kind of Christian there's folk so at the, much merch. at the gate 
yeah, like all the, you know, you know, it's like this really happened, this really happened. And you have these layers upon layers upon layers. And all of that feels like it's driving. And this is really fascinating again on that kind of, you know, ethics of true crime. It feels like the it's almost flipped in that the the fact that the killings almost happened is there to support the fact that Charles B. Pierce's grandson is a character rather than the other way around. Um, and when you actually think of the ethics of that, that's really fascinating. Mm. Um, and it, it makes logic, you know, it makes sense in the film. And I'm certainly not saying that the film is is unethical for doing it, but I think that, that we can accept that they're watching the original version in the 2014 version, but we do need a little bit more hand-holding when it comes to Charles B. Pierce's grandson being a character. And that's please. wild. Like, what does that say about us? That that's oh. what we need our hands held over. <laughs> and also played by Dennis O'Hare, who, and I think, I think like this is where I, I put my next Supreme slash American Horror Story slash Ryan Murphy Stan hat on. Um, this is essentially a offshoot of American Horror Story. The director, Alfonso Gomez Rejon, was started off uh, and directed many, many episodes of AHS. Obviously, this is produced and based on an idea, well, project of ryan murphy um you wanted to talk about michael goy the cinematographer who also yeah. has worked a lot with murphy in american horror story i mean michael's like an emmy award-winning cinematographer um you know he he was the um head of the asc i believe i i would have to check that so forgive me if i'm wrong there but certainly you know very well regarded awarded cinematographer mm-hmm. and absolutely director. you know and director, which I was going to touch on. Um, so I got to know Michael through um, my found footage horror book when I was writing on his film, Megan is Missing, um, which is, it, it's an extraordinary film. And every couple mm-hmm. of years, a new generation discovers it. And it, oh, it yeah. astonishes me. But what is more extraordinary is that it always ex- it astonishes Michael, you know, like, and he's he's on the record for this, you know, every couple of years, I'll, you know, it'll turn up like the big TikTok thing a couple of years yep. ago. Um, this whole new generation, and there's something about it that seems to transcend the specificities of social media. You know, there was like a Tumblr thing a couple of years before the TikTok thing, you know, when Tumblr Mm -hmm. was like a big, big thing. Um, And it's, I mean, I think it's an incredible film, uh, you know, and I I, I know, you know, it's very controversial, but certainly for Michael himself, and again, he's on the record with this, you know, his intentions with that were really to make like a safety film, Mm -hmm. like an after-school, and it has those after-school special vibes, but then it just turns into like, this insanely violent torture porn, and I don't usually use that phrase, but they're the aesthetics that that film was sort of working with. But it's not just a torture porn film. So Michael's got a lot of experience, you know, just with with working with young people. Um, you know, he's obviously somebody who's thought very deeply about, um, you know, adolescence and threat and and violence and all of those things. And I don't think you can explicitly see that come to the table in what he does in The Town That Dreaded Sundown. But at the same time, knowing that he has that background, there's there's just – I mean, I, I solely watched this film when it came out solely because of Michael's involvement. Mm. Aside from anything, he's a beautiful photographer, and and I think that's actually one of the things that always floats to the surface with the 2014 version is just how good it looks. It but the way that he beautiful. shoots – the way that he shoots young people, and I, I say that it shoots with a camera, um, is extraordinary, and, and we do get really quite interesting – shots mm-hmm. and and lighting you know the way that he actually films young people is is really 
really significant. And I actually think mm-hmm. it plays a huge role in, in what makes the, the 2014 version so effective. Well, that's a that's a good segue actually into my next question because this you know our conversation is part of this teen horror season, and and what I find really interesting about both films is that in the in the original, it's a it's a film where a lot of teenagers and adults to get killed, but we almost see nothing from their perspective. It's all about the town, a lot of it's about the investigation, and it's about the killer. Whether it's in the two thousand fourteen film, we get a teenage girl on the cusp of leaving home, an orphan teenage girl, as our principal protagonist and essentially our entry point, the audience surrogate, but also um, not the designated victim, but someone who is there to uh, ensure the legacy of the killer. And I find that really interesting. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned kind of the the way that the, the young people are photographed in this. Um... Kind of, how do you think that these that these two films approach their their younger protagonists? It's really interesting. I think when you look at it from that way, you can very much see the first film as it really plays out like a police procedural. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the second one is much much close, closer to what we understand as a slasher, you know, the slasher tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, Jamie's a really interesting character um, played by Addison Timlin in that in, in terms, I think of her relationship to the final girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Final Girl is one of these things that's sort of become bigger than the sum of its parts, right? Like yeah. it's sort of you know thrown around, um, you know, like um, you know, giants of giants of horror, like yourself, obviously, you know, <laughs> have I feel, a handle I, on this. But it's one of I those feel things like that's we've almost exhausted sort of, her. Well, it's almost like transcended the meaning. Do you know what I mean? Final mm. Girl is just a tough chick in horror now. Um, does that make sense? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, whereas if if you go back to you know, and again, obviously, like you were the last person that I need to explain this to, but if you go back to that original Carol Clover article, we actually find, I mean, she really cherry picks her examples, and and you know, people don't talk about this, you know, kind of. Um, but Clover herself would, you know, she's an academic. She she would have been open up or would be still open up for for debate. Um, and you know, this was criticism of of that work at the time was that she cherry picks her examples. So they're not necessarily re- reflective of slasher as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, the final girl works. It's an idea that floats and it's very, very strong. But, um, you know, one of Clover's thing was, you know, the, the final girl always has a boy's name. Not mm-hmm. true. Um, you know, and she, you, you know, when you look at something like Black Christmas, again, you know, the idea of her being a virgin starts to fall apart, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like the, the, the core ideas really work and they're really, really effective. But Jamie has a really interesting relationship to that original definition of the final girl, I think, in that she is really prudish, she's really smart. We don't see her babysit, but we may as well. You know, she really fits that tradition. Um, she has the unisex name. You know, it's 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 not a feminized name. Um, but she's so interesting because where she doesn't fit into the final girl is this idea that she survives over her friends because mm-hmm. she doesn't have any friends or she certainly doesn't mm-hmm. have any female friends. And, you know, the only contact that we see her have is really with Corey and and Nick. Mm-hmm. And I find that so interesting in that she's this really isolated figure and she's really quite explicit about that isolation. You know, there's a scene where she's talking, um, I think she's talking to a psychologist and she says that she she went out with Corey and then, and then went out to, you know, the lover's lane or wherever they go because she was flattered. Mm-hmm. Not because she fancied him, but because nobody ever asked her out. You know, she was really, really flattered and, and 
that that's such a it's one of those little nothing moments, but to me it's it's one of those everything moments at the same time. You know, this isn't this isn't a horny teen film. You know, it, it's got all the trimmings of the horny teen film, but um, yeah, she fits into that final girl configuration, I think, in a really complicated way that is perhaps easy to miss. And and I'm kind of conscious of time, so I wanted to um to ask a, a final question and. I found really curious watching both films, but specifically the 2014 one, is that in the last year, we've seen quite a few of these requels, i.e. Um, reimaginings of and also sequels to beloved franchises or beloved um, films. And I'm not thinking only of horror. I'm also thinking, you know, I'm thinking of The Matrix Resurrections. I'm thinking of Scream, Scream 5, which came out earlier this year. Um... But this feels like it fits perfectly in that mold, but with a property that is not as well known or as was as financially successful as those examples. Do you think this, the town that dreaded Sundown 2014, is established is is in that mold, but just came a few years before we could actually collectively understand what that approach to sequelizing a film means? Yeah, and I think that it's it, it was sort of um, the same thing that was a blessing for the 2014 version was also a curse. And, you know, you nailed that when you use the, the word beloved. You know, the original town that dreaded sundown wasn't beloved. Um, and we, we touched on that earlier. So it meant that it was a property that they could go absolutely wild with. You know, there wasn't going to be like fan outrage. It's like, oh, my God, you've desecrated the memory of, you know, it's not like the Ghostbusters rhetoric, right? Like, you're destroying my childhood by fucking around with the town that treaded sundown. Yeah, justice for Charles B. Pierce. Right? Like, I didn't hear any of that. (laughs) Maybe it happened. Maybe maybe I was just immune to it. I don't know. Um, but I think that that gave them enormous freedom, and I think that's precisely one of the reasons, you know, as as they've discussed, why they why they chose it because they mm-hmm. could really just, as we say in Australia, they could cut fully sick, like they could just go crazy, and and just go nuts that. and 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 really just go berserk, which they absolutely do. Like it, it really just, <laughs> it just goes just goes ape shit. It um, is a but mad mad. Film. It's a really mad film. They're both really mad. They're both really really mental films <laughs> like they're unstable insane movies um but you know when you have you know your halloweens or screams or whatever yeah and like you said you know matrix you know people have that investment so you're just going to get more more people seeing it mm. you know more noise more more you know commercially it makes sense but you you also get that sort of princessing oh what about my past you know my emotions uh giant man babies having feelings um so yeah i, I think in a way that didn't help the town that dreaded sundown, you know, and and um, so it does sit in a really interesting position, I think, in that it, it tried, it did something really different, I think, that a lot of, you know, why would you do a, a requel or a sequel or a reboot of a franchise that wasn't successful? And mm. it's like, well, this isn't not only not successful, it's not even franchise. Um, it's fascinating. I, I, I find that really endlessly interesting. I find it really interesting. And actually, I think those are the films that I'd love to see that I'm genuinely interested in seeing remakes or reimaginings of. I don't need a reimagining of something that was good already. I want a reimagining of something that perhaps didn't quite work or didn't quite land at the time, um, but with a new set of creatives. Yeah, absolutely. Or that just takes it to a completely new level, like just mm-hmm. takes that original, you know, the Black Christmas remake, uh, the, the most recent one. Yeah. Um, 
got a lot of flack, but I think it did exactly the right thing because Absolutely. I don't need to see that original one again because mm. I've seen it and it's perfect. So, you know, you take those core ideas and you, and you run with it into a new direction. Um, and that's that's the spirit of the thing, right? And I, I like that that's almost like a spiritual sequel. Um, it's It's got the same kind of essence. I know that's a sort of little... Mm-hmm a little hippie but yeah like I, I I mean there's so many films that that are great that could have that done to them like we don't need constant fan service mm-hmm. um we don't need you know I think we're well past um you know there's a couple of franchises that do it really well but um I don't think we need a constant post postmodern winking to mm-hmm. to to tell us how clever we are and how in on the joke we are like if you're going to do that I want you to be as mad as the 2014 town that dreaded sundown like go completely mad we want you to be completely off your head. And, of course, you know, with Scream and Halloween, we see that madness really escalate. And, you know, it's a varying effect, um, I think, you know, across those those franchises. Sometimes the madness works, sometimes it doesn't. But the spirit's there, right? And, Alex, before I let you go, is there anything that you wanted to mention about either one of the towns that dreaded sundown um, that we haven't touched on? The, the trombone, man. Like, what's going on? <laughs> oh, like, my God. It's just... I mean, it's mad shit. It is that is such a great shit. kill, though. It's-, it's so good. And it's just like, you know, the, the woman in the first one happened to be a trombone player, which I think she was in real life. I'm not sure. I, I'm I believe not sure that either. The, the actual victim in real life was a trombone player. But just who came up with that? Like, what was. <laughs> and then, you know, making the sequel, of, you know, the prequel, the 2014 version, it's like, you know what? We've got to have the trombone scene in there. Like, the trombone, but he has like a, a what is it like a what's one of those tridenty things that you use for hay? I can't remember what they're called now. It reminds me of um, it's such a weird point of reference, but it's like, it always feels like it's a kind of s- sort of slapstick version of the um the the weapon in Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. Oh my god! You know, with the guy, yes, the guy sort of straps ex- the yeah. the knife to the camera with the you know, and he uses he need the mirror, so he mm-hmm. films. I'm spoiling this film, but it is from 1960, so fucking step up. I'm sorry, I won't apologize <laughs> for spoiling a film from 1960. The killer has a giant mirror attached to a camera with a knife attached to it, so that when he kills his victims, they have to see themselves dying, and he films it. There, spoiler. No, peeping Tom is Peeping Tom is officially spoiled. The trombone doesn't have the same um spectatorial you know <laughs> um power of of the weapon but it's just this sort of you know this idea of this sort of goofy homemade weapon uh, to serenade them i don't know i don't know it's i can't for the life of me think why that's an idea that anyone would do I, and i love that it happened it's my it's one of my all-time favorite slasher kills it's up there with the kebab from happy birthday to me like it's really good it's a really solid kill It's solid because it is so... I can see that they thought it would be extra scary and gruesome and grotesque, but it does just come off as goofy. It's like, oh, Buster Keaton's here to... (laughs) It's really goofy. If Buster Keaton never made a slasher, he would have made the town that dreaded dreaded sundown. (laughs) There, I said it. That that I would pay to see. That, that (laughs) that, That is a film that I am here for. Um, Alex, thank you so much for your time and for your generous insight. And for anyone who's not yet following you online, where can people find more of your work? Uh, I'm on on Twitter. Um, you can find me through my name, interestingly enough. Um, and yeah, I have a website that's linked to from there. And um, Twitter, Twitter is sort of the little central hub. So find me there and you'll find all the stuff that I do. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much.